On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is part two of our episode with Kyle Mills. I've read a bunch of them. The, the two most useful ones were, I think, uh, that I still own, are uh, writing the blockbuster novel. I think that's by Zuckerberg. And one called Self-Editing for Fiction Writers. Uh, Rennie King, maybe? Um, easily found still. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. So Kyle, um, you if anybody missed part one, you really need to go back and, and hear about some of Kyle's New York Times number one bestseller success. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you got to go meet the folks from the movie that came out last week. Isn't that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Oh, it was fun. I, you know, honestly, it could have been better. I, uh, I went to the premiere. I had gotten sick. I was on tour. I was in the middle of my tour and, uh, I also, they had also scheduled a, uh, uh, a book signing for me. I was doing a presentation of book signing, uh, right almost simultaneously with this thing. So I walked in there, I was already 45 minutes late to my book for my book signing. So it was kind of a uh, run in and run out sort of thing. So I did the red carpet uh, and then uh, was about to run out the door and everybody said, no, you have to meet Dylan first. So we had to yank him off the red carpet so I could (laughs) talk to him for a couple of minutes and then get a picture. And then I shot out the door and, uh, raced to my event. So I didn't even get to go in and sit, sit in the movie. So, uh, or get to, I didn't even, I, heck, I didn't even get popcorn. <laughs> I blew in and blew out. Um, but it would have been fun to be able to spend some more time and talk about the process. Yeah. Um, well, changing gears here for just a minute. One of the questions we like to ask most of our guests is, um, 
our regular listeners know about the charity we started, um, Combating Child Sex Trafficking. We've got prevention campaigns called the Backyard Broadcast at high schools here in America. We've got, we help build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. Sometimes we pay for law enforcement trainings or, or sometimes even send guys to go help uh, on undercover rescue missions with, with foreign law enforcement or, or financially support those uh, operations. If you were our advisor and, and giving us advice on how to get more people involved in caring about kids and, and this issue, what kind of advice would you have for us? Well, I, I have not been involved in stuff like that, but my wife works for a charity and works a lot with youth. Um, and I think the thing that she's always said is that getting people to actually out there to meet the kids, uh, that's what she's always shot for and to really demonstrate in real ways how people's, uh, money and support has, has affected individual kids' lives. Uh, and, and people have just loved that here. Obviously it's much easier. She works for Grand Teton National Park and people can go out and meet the kids and work on trails with them and things like that. Um, but youth from, uh, inner cities and stuff like that. And, uh, I think that's it. It's that personal connection. It's actually interesting. There's a book about this, uh, man, I, we have it. I, I wish I could remember, but it's on the science of giving hmm. and, uh, it might even be called that, but it's really fascinating stuff. It's about things like if you put, you know, st- you know, 50 kids on a, on a poster, you get less than if you put one kid hmm. and even more interesting, if you put statistics on it, even if it's just the one kid, you get less because it, from the statistics. So it's kind of it was a kind of an interesting book if you can find it uh, that that's just about the psychology of maybe why people get involved in charities and what appeals to them. Oh, I'll have to hunt that book down. That's that sounds great. You know, I actually wanted to ask when we were when we were leaving off on part one of the episode, um, you had mentioned you know the ability to succeed in this business. You need to be able to become objective and, and criticize your own work and become honest about what makes other books successful and if your book has it or not. Um, do you remember what those three books were that you had gone through the first time by chance? Uh, well, I went through, I read a bunch of them. The, the two most useful ones were, I think, uh, that I still own are uh, writing the blockbuster novel. I think that's by Zuckerberg and one called self-editing for fiction writers. Uh, my Rennie King, maybe, um, easily found still. And, uh, I thought those were, I had read, unfortunately, I didn't read the self-editing for fiction writers until after I wrote the book because it seemed like that would be appropriate as that's when you'd edit. But, uh, man, I found a lot of mistakes. Like I didn't understand the concept of point of view when I wrote my first book and I had to, I didn't learn it until I read that book and I had to go back and rewrite the book. Um, with specific specific points of view. Yeah. So I think those are two uh, really good ones I love it. to get. Well, and you talked about these extensive outlines and, and your methodology for writing a book. On, on a day-to-day basis, what does that look like? Do you have a typical schedule or, or what is your week like? Yeah, I'm kind of a nine to fiver. I think I got in that. I, I, I probably learned that just, you know, from working in, in the bank. And also I, I always worked when my wife was out of the house. Um, it's funny. I, I kind of live my life and sort of have created a, my life around flexibility and freedom. Um, you know, I live, I've lived all over the world. I work wherever I am. But for some reason, I, I've never been able to do that time wise. So I can't tend to get up in the morning and work. Um, 
and get my work done before I go do anything else. I wish I was the type of person that could, you know, just work whenever because, you know, sometimes living in Wyoming, you know, the snow flies, you got great powder or something, you just rather ski and then work at <laughs> night or something. But uh, it's never, it's never really been functional for me. Yeah. You know, in all, I, I've recently been going back through books like Stephen Pressfield's War of Art and just um, a number of, you know, Austin Cleon books or, or uh, different folks who, who just categorize what are people's routines. Tim Ferriss produced a book recently of just, I think it's like 150 artists. What were their routines like? And it, it does seem like there's a pattern that more than not folks, you know, the really prolific, the people who actually produce do it your way of, of having a routine and sticking to it. Um, do you have like a micro routine? Like, does it usually start out the same way? Are you just, are you just plop down in front of the computer and pick up where you left off yesterday or what's that routine like? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, with, with, uh, the outlining process, it's a little looser as far as the amount of time I work. Um, you know, some with that's pure creativity. I mean, that's creating a book and mm -hmm. a creating story, creating characters. So I do that as long as I can. Um, so like and, three hours, six hours, what, what's yeah, kind of a daily limit? probably three would be about maximum yeah. um, before my brain is just done. And then I, I, I used to try to work a full day when I first started because that's what I was used to. But what you ended up with was five hours of wasting your time. Because um, <laughs> you you got the, you drained the creativity for the day, huh? Exactly. And then other days, it's, you know, if you have a really amazing day, I've had days where I've worked 15 minutes where I've just like sat down. I'm like, oh my God, that's like 25 hours. I just fixed a major problem and I came up with a character that I love and all this, and I'm just going to take the rest of the day off. Yeah. Uh, so, but with now with the writing, I have, I write a chapter a day. So, and then I edit a chapter a day. So th that has to get done. So, I mean, if I have to work till midnight, you know, then I work till midnight. That's the schedule. So, sorry, you write the chapter one day and you edit it the next day? No, no, no. Right. So and the way I do it is again, kind of weird, but it works for my schedule and how fast I am. Is so if once I, I've got the outline, the, the other thing is with the outline, one of the things I like about having the outline that long, and again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but it works for me, is I don't necessarily write the book in order. I just pick a chapter that kind of inspires me because I have such a strong framework of what that chapter is going to be. So I might, I might say, oh, I'm really interested. You know, I've, I've just finished chapter 10, but I'm really interested in doing chapter 40 today, and I'll just write chapter 40. And then once I've gotten like 10 chapters written, I go back to the whatever the first one I wrote was and start editing those. So I'll write, so maybe I'll write chapter 11 and edit chapter one, right? Then I'll write chapter 12 and edit chapter two. Um, all in one day. And that my preference would not to be to do it that way. But I mean, you know, in order for me to get the book done, that's the way it goes. Now that again, you know, if you have an editor that's interested and, and I, I don't fortunately, but I did the first Mitch Rapp book I did my the people were uh, that Vince worked with were, were, I think, for very good reason, interested in what I was doing. Because my typical thing is I, I hole up, I don't really ever talk to anybody. And one day I deliver a book. Uh, and so I had to kind of change that because they wouldn't want like 10 chapters that were spread out all over the book in no particular order. So yeah. I actually had to write the first 10 chapters in order and then edit them. Um, <laughs> that does not work for me at all. So I'm interested in this. So let's say you're in outlining mode. You've really, really been pushing your, your three hours. You feel like you've accomplished what you're going to accomplish for the day. What will you do with the rest of a day? Uh, probably depends on the season. I uh, probably either go mountain biking or go skiing. 
uh, or do house chores. Yeah, yeah. On, hopefully for one of the first two. And um, skiing wise, it sounds like you guys are really into tree skiing. Is that right? More backcountry? Yeah, I don't really ever. Well, I mean, it's I live right near what people call the village, what people call Jackson Hole. Uh, but I don't ever really ski there. I yeah, I ski in the backcountry, so skin up, ski down, kind of thing. Yeah. I, I feel like some of the best powder I've ever had in my life is hiking Jackson Pass or over by Grand Teton, you know, over at uh, Grand Targhee, just that kind of champagne powder. No wonder yeah. No wonder that's what you do. And there's a million, you know, just a million miles of it. Yeah. Plus, that's a good, you know, I think I also do a lot of trail running. And I think that those are really good. That's a really good creative space because they're those pursuits are uh, to some extent a little boring and solitary so um you know you kind of get out there and you go for a two-hour run and there's not that much to think about you know you're running on a trail through the trees there's nobody with you you don't really see any people and i mean i wrote a big chunk of enemy of the state on one trail run i was on in tucson it was like four hour run and i i got really bored and i thought oh, i should start thinking about that book so i have to start it pretty soon and i'd worked out a ton of it uh by the time i finished that run because you have nothing to distract you really other than not tripping you know there's a great book called autopilot i want to say it's by adam smart and he talks about researchers that were studying brain activity and how they thought their fmri machines were broken because when they didn't have the patient thinking about anything there were all these parts of the brain lighting up and it kind of led to the discovery of the default mode network and how like now they're studying what the brain is synthesizing when we're not involved in conscious thought and he just goes through example after example of people on a walk or newton sitting sitting in a garden and just the the way that our brain synthesize everything we've been doing when we're not actively involved in sorting it out ourselves. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons it's funny, I was just talking to a guy yesterday who had seen the movie and he didn't know that I was involved in those things. And, <laughs> and he said, uh, I told him and he said, Oh, you know, I could never do that kind of stuff. I'm really not creative. And I think modern society to some extent is poison to creativity because creativity to my mind necessitates boredom and it's why most of the good i I swear to god most of the good ideas that have have been generated in the last 50 years have been generated in the shower um (laughs) you're standing you know and honestly i don't know how how the world progressed prior to the invention of the shower i think that's probably why it progressed so slowly um, and it's because you're just standing there, you're staring at the wall, there's nothing to do. And, but the world now, at least the, the industrialized world always is grabbing for your attention. There's always mm. something, I mean, and then the invention of the smartphone just destroyed what little left, what little boredom there was left in life. So, you know, I don't think people are kind of alone with their thoughts that much anymore. Even, even like, as you go to bed, you know, you're so tired now from mm. your day, um, and all the sensory stuff that's black blasting at you. But, you know, if you live in Wyoming and you could, you're an endurance athlete, you know, there's plenty of time for boredom. And and I think that's kind of amazing. Cause that, even the internet, you know, if I'm really stuck uh, in a day, I have to shut off the internet because there's just always something interesting to, you know, click that's on right. or think about. And uh, it really destroys your ability to do anything. You know, it's like that Cal Newport book, Deep Work, how he talks about, you know, most people will not discipline themselves to turn off the email ding and the text messages and stuff. And that's why most people can't produce as prolifically as the ones who will separate themselves and, like you said, cause the boredom or just be alone with the same thought uninterrupted for three hours in a stretch. Yeah, Um, 
It's really amazing. I mean, it, it's truly amazing. I, I you know, I, when I was on tour just recently, I had sort of a writing schedule and I thought, you know, I'm going to be on tour for a week and a half and I'm, I'm going to get X done. And I got all that done in the first day. And it was because I was on airplanes and I'm too cheap to pay for the Wi-Fi. <laughs> and like, seriously, I think it was the first one eight hour flight. And I was done with my two, my week and a half's worth of work. Yeah. So uh, something to think about. Yeah. Well, um, when you think about your craft, I mean, it, it is it's a cool, you know, it's very cool. Obviously, they like making movies about what you do. Um, there's so many people that would like to do it. In your mind, what separates the few that actually succeed at, at writing this thriller genre that, you know, the spec ops espionage world? What do you think are some commonalities amongst, say, I don't know, the top 10 or top 50? So I, you know, they all write pretty good. I mean, if you look at the top people, they all write pretty good books, which, uh, you know, certainly having that, um, having that is, is kind of important. Um, I would say one thing that's not talked about too much as far as commercial success goes is having a really good team behind you. Uh, I've, I mean, Vince's team is phenomenal. Uh, everybody is absolutely on top of it at all times. And he stuck with that team for many, many years uh, for, for good reason. So that kind of having that behind you, I think, as far as commercial success goes, is absolutely critical and sometimes not controllable. You know, I mean, I, I for instance, have had terrible luck with um, my editors. I, I sign up and I swear to God, something happens to them. And it's it's the weirdest thing. But um, they quit or they get fired or they, I don't know, decide to change careers or whatever. I don't, maybe it's me. I don't know. Um so I, I think that is not to be ignored. And, you know, I think the hard work aspect of it, um, a lot of people think that writing should be easy, that you should, you know, knock out your first draft and there it is. Um, and, and that is not the case really ever. Yeah. Well, you've been, a, you know, you've been attached to, you know, besides your own successes, like we talked about fade, you know, you've done, you've worked with the Ludlum, the Clancy, now the Flynn. What do you think it is about your skill set or, or what you've worked at that you can gain the trust of such, you know, the most notable names in the industry that they trust you with their series? Well, I, Maybe my writing history is maybe a little bit unusual in that and, and probably maybe from a commercial standpoint for the worse. And that is I wrote about kind of whatever I was interested in at the time. And I changed my style to some extent to to match that that uh, subject matter. So I've written everything from, you know, Vince Flynn books, which I think people are familiar with, uh, to general fiction. I wrote a book called Smokescreen about the tobacco industry, which I used to call it a corporate thriller, but the truth is, you know, the, their dirty truth is that it's just general fiction. Um, so my ability, I think, to, if, if I have an unusual ability, it's, an, it's the ability to write in almost any style, uh, to change my style to suit what I'm writing. And maybe that's because I read so broadly as a kid and didn't really necessarily have a preference for one genre over another. Uh, so I think that's probably to some extent what attracted, what initially attracted the Ludlums to me, um, that they, that I could write in the style that they wanted the books written in. Um, and the same thing with Vince's books. 
And it's kind of funny because if you look at my books versus Vince's, I don't write in his style at all. Um, and in a way, it's made it easier because I, if I'm slipping into my own voice, it's really obvious. Um, and I can either, I'm, at least I'm aware of it and I can say, yes, this works, which is pretty rare that I would do that. But sometimes maybe it works. Uh, but otherwise, I can say, uh, you know, I can stop and pull back and, and rewrite that section. So that and, you know, I mean, fundamentally, the reason I've been successful with Vince's books, I think, is because I care. Um, you know, I, I loved the series. I love the character and, and the fans have been really good to me. And I would be devastated if, you know, I wrote a book and everybody, you know, all his fans hated it. Mm -hmm. um, so and I misspoke there, right? You didn't do Clancy correct? Am no, I... no, I just, I just had a relationship with oh, him. Okay. Like a personal relationship. Um, well, thinking of, I, I want to go back to one other comment you said about not making it too real, like specifically this, this aspect of, of thrillers. When you said not making it too real, what did you mean there? Making it too real in context of what's the context? I don't know. Uh, in part one of the episode, I was saying, why do you think that you've done so well in this kind of spec ops espionage thriller space? And you said, I made it about the oh. people and I, you know, you struck a balance between exciting uh, without maybe being too real. Did you mean that I, I was interested in where you were going with that thought? Well, the, with with writing, I mean, dialogue is a perfect example of this. So, you know, some people will write very, very realistic dialogue. But if you if you just set a recorder in a room that people are talking in, the, the way people actually communicate, there's a lot of fluff. Um, another example, it's funny because somebody had just criticized me about this is, is in my books, uh, the, you know, if you're in one place, you just, in the next chapter, you're just in the next place. You, you know, I don't have you driving there for five pages, but some authors, uh, don't, they don't, they hate that. They, they want that unbroken timeline. I, I always think of Caleb Carr's first book, uh, was it the alienist? where it, it was it was a great book but it was really funny because you know it was a historical novel so they only had horses so it took them forever to get from one place to another and he didn't seem to have a lot going on while they were doing it they were kind of chit-chatting and the horse was clomping along they had to make it all the way across new york and i thought why doesn't he just have them be there so those are the choices you make i mean you can't write anything completely realistically you know similar you know like i was saying with the military stuff you know you can't have i mean a, Think about World War II. If you tried to write a novel about World War II, there were you know 500 different battlefronts and thousand different commanders and and stuff like that. And you you can't um, everybody speaking in separate languages. And and it's just, it just makes for an impossible story to tell. A story has to be grounded in a few characters, and you have to care about what what you know their experience and their journey. Well, and I, I want to talk about this. Um, there's some other series that I really enjoy, but I really only care about one character in that series where, you know, what you've written, you know, let's talk about the newest book here, Enemy of the State, like <clears throat> whether it's Donatella, you know, across the characters, like I actually, like, I really want to know what Kennedy and Scott are doing back home. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't <laughs> only care about Mitch. What, how do you, how do you accomplish that? I think that is, again, the, you know, it being critical. I don't treat those characters when I'm writing them any differently than I do Mitch. So I try to inhabit those characters and understand what they're feeling, what they're doing. I know what their history is going all the way back to grade school. It's in my mind anyway. Um, so they're just as real to me as, as Mitch is. 
And I, I think I realized that when I wrote this book, Smokescreen, because I wrote that book in the first person. It's the only book I've ever written in the first person. And I realized after I'd finished it that all the characters except for that first person character were terrible. And it's because every character had to be seen through that guy's eyes. So you were always really writing about him. And so I had to go back and rewrite the book in such a way that he was always viewing other people in kind of a deeper way. So that or, or that those characters actions and their and their dialogue was always very telling as to who they were and not just sort of moving the plot forward. Um, they weren't pieces uh, to be pushed around in, in service of the main character. So to me, that's that's critical. And, you know, in, in a lot of Vince's books, he created these great characters, but some of them you just always wanted to know more about, like Scott, you know, yeah. I mean, Stan Hurley was very well-drawn character, but Scott in particular, I was always fascinated with because we didn't know that much about him. And how did I picture him? And, you know, how would I create uh, more history with him, you know, yeah. uh, talk about his family and things like that? Well, I know we're about out of time here, so maybe this will be a closing question. Um, I feel like, you know, I've, I've read quite a number of screenwriting books also. And one of the lessons I feel like I learned from them is that your good guy gets better if your bad guy is worse kind of idea. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, whether it's whether it's Crouppen, whether it's, you know, <laughs> I think it's OK to say there's a Saudi intelligence chief in the new book, probably. Right. Like. Right. Or, or like even the, the president in the new book. Right. Like you get me genuinely annoyed with them, like <laughs> like seriously, seriously annoyed with them, maybe more so than the one dimensional Saturday morning cartoon villain who is going to blow up the world in some other series. Any any advice about writing bad guys? For me, I've always liked bad guys best. And in my books, much more so than the ones I've written for Vince, I mean, they play a huge role in in the books. I mean, they're they're half the ink. Um, and I think you again, you know, I don't I don't want to beat a dead horse, but you really you have to learn to inhabit the bad guys, too. Why do they feel everybody feels justified in doing what they want to? A friend of mine once said, you know, who's a, a, a literary writer, you know, everybody's the hero of their own book. <laughs> and so why does that guy feel justified kicking puppies or whatever it is he's doing? Mm -hmm. And there's something there. People don't just do stuff. You know, I've, I've always been fascinated with megalomaniacs. And, and the uh, I have this fundamental question that I've been, I think, in search of my entire life. And is, do, do people believe their own BS? You know, mm -hmm. when you talk about this very megalomaniacal people, politicians or whatever, when they're up there telling you something that is demonstrably not true, do they believe it at that moment? Or are they consciously lying? Like or you know, do they think you're stupid? And I and I'm 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 always curious about that. Now, but I always want to see. I'm always fascinated when people are put to the when their beliefs are put to the test. When they say one thing, uh, and but act don't act on it. They they act differently. Yeah. You know. Uh. You know. So recently, somebody said that that uh, uh, the, the hurricane Irma was was a hoax, but then they moved out of their house in Florida. <laughs> and so you're so right. So there I have my answer, at least in that instance. No, that person does not believe their own BS. <laughs> yeah. Rationalization is huge, huh? Well, you know, it's it's a, it's almost a humanity has an almost unlimited capacity to rationalize their own beliefs. And now with the internet to pursue the, to pursue those beliefs in such a way that they're never challenged. The recruiting and of it, other rationalizers. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And you can find all the same rationalizers, you know, they're all out there. Whereas maybe you never could have really run into a person who thinks the moon landing was a hoax. Now you can find thousands of them out there to reinforce your beliefs. And I think that's becoming a very powerful uh, trend in humanity now. Uh, and, and it's something that you have to deal with when you're writing uh, books about people and about geopolitics. Yeah, I love it. Well, we appreciate how much time you spent with us. Um, maybe in closing, what what advice would you give or what's the best piece of advice you ever got or, or what's something that uh, you would want to close with? O- open reins, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Uh, you know... Find what you're good at and what makes you happy without, you know, set aside everything that you've been told or maybe you've experienced up to then and figure out what it is that you want to do. And if you feel like you can do it and you have an ability for it, work hard at it. And I think I I, I think uh, that's the recipe for happiness. But keeping in mind, though, that you might be surprised what you want to do, because let me tell you, if you'd have told me 25 years ago that I would make my living as a novelist, I would have laughed. Yeah, love it. Great advice. Thanks again for uh, for spending so much time with us. My pleasure. That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.